Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, our topic is Maine scallops. Scallop season starts at the beginning of December, and that has a lot of people pretty excited to sample this delicious Maine shellfish during the holiday season. But what makes scallops so special, Maine scallops especially? How are they managed and what's the prognosis for the future? My guests today to help us better understand the unique Maine scallop fishery are Trisha Cheney from the Department of Marine Resources. She's the fisheries or one of the fisheries managers there. Hi, Trisha. Good morning. Um, Tove Braun, who's a former fisheries manager at the Department of Marine Resources, but currently a scallop evangelist. And she works with Down East Davo. Hello. Go scallops! <laughs> <laughs> and we have Phoebe Jekalek. Did I say it right? Yep. Excellent. Who's the Director of Outreach and Marketing at the Hurricane Island Center for Science and Leadership. Thanks for coming. Thank you. And we also have Dana Morris from the University of Maine Sea Grant and Cooperative Extension, and he's a Marine Extension Associate. Hi, Dana. Hi, morning. So before we um, dive into meeting our guests personally and hearing about their work in scallops, I wanted to let listeners know that this show has been pre-recorded and will not be taking calls at this time. So, um, yeah, Trisha, tell us a little bit about what your work entails at the Department of Marine Resources. Yeah, certainly. So I'm a resource management coordinator for the Scallop Resource. Essentially what I do is work with fishermen to help develop policy for the fishery. So I work closely with them through a Scallop Advisory Council. And there's also scientists who sit on that council as well, and we evaluate different management strategies and, um, for the fishery. And then I bring that back and work with the commissioner, and we decide what to put out for rulemaking every year. So I work closely with industry, science, as well as um, the leadership with the department here. Great, great. It's great to have you, and great to have the perspective from a manager in this conversation about scallops. Um, Tobe, tell us a little bit about what... Um, a scallop evangelist does. Um, so I can only speak about this scallop evangelist, of course, but um, my goal, I would say, for the past eight or nine years has been to increase the sustainability and the profitability of Maine scallop fishery. So I started out at the Department of Marine Resources and worked in uh, fisheries management and trying to help bring the resource back. And now I'm focusing more on the profitability because here in Maine we produce the best scallops in the country. Uh, a very small amount, only 1% of USC scallops come from Maine, but they're vastly superior for reasons I can explain later. Um, and so I try to differentiate them in the marketplace so that our fishermen can get more money for this dramatically superior product. And I ship across the country. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm pretty certain that our listeners are going to be excited to hear about Maine scallops and how to get them, what mm -hmm. to look for, especially in this holiday season. So that's great. Um, Dana, tell us a little bit about what you do. Uh, I'm an extension agent, uh, which some people along the coast may have heard before. That means I do a mix of education, outreach, and technology transfer. Um, I originally came to the scallop world having participated in a trip to Japan and then worked on uh, techniques to enhance our wild stocks. Uh, so how can we use 
some specific techniques to uh, improve our coastal scallop populations. I had also done a little bit of work on scallop gear research, scallop drag design, and then um, all of those things kind of led into an interest in growing scallops, scallop aquaculture. And so that now forms a part of my work, including an area that I think is really interesting, which is kind of the intersection between commercial fishing and farming, both for the person and for the animals themselves. Great. Thanks, Dana. Great to have you on the show. And Phoebe, how about you? What's, what's up at Hurricane Island um, in your world? So I am here on behalf of Caitlin Cleaver, who's our Director of Science and Research um, at a local nonprofit in Rockland, Maine, the Hurricane Island Center for Science and Leadership, where we do science, sustainability, and leadership programming, but we are also developing our Center for Science and Research. So as part of that, we are coordinating um, a small-scale closure um, research project with local fishermen uh, in kind of southwestern Penobscot Bay. And so you'll be hearing more about that. And um, I was involved in the initial establishing of this project um, as part of the Wally Lab at UMaine. Great, great. Um, so there are a lot of scholar scallop fishermen out there that we were hoping to have on the show, um, but we'll have to have these guys tell us some of their stories. So I'm going to ask Tobe to, uh, you, you said that Maine scallops are the best scallops on mm -hmm. the planet. Um, I think you maybe even have said the universe. Well, <laughs> I'm sure that's true. <laughs> um, tell us why. Give okay. us the big picture on scallops. I'll give you the, sort of the big picture of the, of the fishery and then bring it back to what makes ours so superior. So the Perfect. U.S. fishery for sea scallops actually started off Castine. A bed was discovered there in the early 1800s, and guys went out there under rowboats and sail power and dragged up scallops there. So it started here in Maine. It has certainly changed since then. Uh, the U.S. fishery brings in between 35 and 50 million pounds of sea scallops each year, primarily uh, caught by large boats fishing on Georgia's bank and in the mid-Atlantic. And it's, uh, it's a fishery where there are boats that are stay offshore for a week or more at a time. They store their scallops in cloth bags buried in ice. That ice melts and is absorbed by the scallops. And so then when they're offloading, then you've got sort of a waterlogged, diluted product, which is still Fine. It's a well-managed fishery, but it's sort of a commodity product. They do that year-round. Uh, that produces roughly 95% of U.S. sea scallops. Here in Maine, we have a very small fishery that starts next week. It goes from December through March. The guys are limited to, depending on where they're fishing, either 10 gallons or 15 gallons per day. So they go out and they come right back in within hours. And because they have Mother Nature as their refrigerant, you know, they're not storing them in ice. It's cold out there on the deck. So they're out there for four hours, five hours at a time. They come back, land these super fresh, super premium scallops. Also, our cold, rich inshore waters produce a better tasting scallop. So they start out better tasting, and then they're landed much fresher. But for decades, we've been just trucking those scallops to out-of-state processing centers where they're mixed in with the stuff from the federal fishery. And that, to me, seems insane. We need to do a better job of differentiating our main scallops. They're caught by both draggers and divers. They're, both fisheries are managed very sustainably. Uh, and we produce amazing stuff here in Maine, and people need to know that they should be going out there and asking for Maine scallops, because Maine scallops are better. You can get them between December and April, and uh, we need to jump on the bandwagon and make sure all Mainers, everyone listening to this, asks their, you know, their fishmongers and their chefs and their servers, you know, where did these scallops come from? Who caught these scallops? Uh, you really want it, the closer you can get to the fishermen, the better. If you can buy Maine scallops from a fisherman, that's your best bet. If you can't, then go to a reputable fishmonger and make sure you're actually getting Maine scallops during the season. Great, great. 
Um, and Trisha, um, so Tobe talked a little bit about the difference between the federal fishery, um, which sounds like a much higher volume fishery, and the main fishery. And I think, Tobe, you said that scallopers in Maine bring in 5 to 15 gallons. 10 to 15. 10 to 15 gallons. So I'm just picturing a few five-gallon buckets. It's, it's The scale of the fishery is just completely different. So um, Trisha, you manage fisheries for the Department of Marine Resources. Help our listeners understand a little bit the difference between sort of a state fishery and a federal fishery. Yeah, essentially there, there's a pretty big difference. And basically our, our participants are day boat scholars, are day boat fishermen. They're usually family owned businesses. So the owner of the vessel is usually operating that vessel, the permit ho license holder. Um, and, and really the benefits from the fishery are being, are going right back into the coastal communities. Whereas with the federal fishery, there are large, you know, almost 100-foot boats um, where those are corporately owned vessels and the benefits from those fisheries are going to shareholders. And so people on the board on deck of those boats are making, you know, a, a, a paid salary or a rate, whereas the benefits really are being kept within our communities for this fishery. A lot of our guys are lobstermen or fish in other fisheries during the rest of the year. So this winter fishery, the scallop fishery in the winter, really complements other fisheries and provides those industry members with diversity throughout the year. So that's why this rebuilding this fishery is important. It's trying to diversify our lobster fleet, give guys something to do and work on in the winter. And the benefits from the fishery go right back into the community and to those families. And how big is the industry in Maine? Yeah, so we've got about 440 active vessels or participants in the fishery. So it's very diverse. There are a lot of boats. Um, there's actually more boats that participate in this fishery than the federal fishery because it's the, the benefits are held within the hands of a few in a federal fishery, where in this fishery, it's, it's very diverse. There's a lot of participants, and overall, it's really seen as a complement to other fisheries. So they're small 45-foot lobster boats that are rug over with either hand gear or, or drag, um, and then you've got a couple guys that also hand harvest or scuba dive for, for, for scallops as well in the wintertime. And they do it from December to April, um, and, and then they switch over to, to another fishery in the spring. Okay, and you mentioned um, the importance of rebuilding the fishery. So give us a little context about um, what it is that we're rebuilding from and how, how that rebuilding process has been going. Yeah, so about 10 years ago in 2005, the fishery experienced an all-time low. Our landings were just over 33,000 pounds and the value of the fishery was just over $200,000. And it was at that time that <clears throat> the, the department really reflected inward and said, hey, we really want to rebuild this fishery. We see potential here. Back in the 80s, this used to be a $3 million fishery. We want to get it back. And because scallops uh, don't swim away, you can manage them using spatial closures by closing bays. Um, the department said, hey, let's do something about this. So it really started with limiting the days, um, putting in four inch rings, which allows small scallops to pass through the drag, protecting those scallops, um, taking and putting mandatory logbooks, collecting information, data on the, on the fishery so we could better evaluate the fishery. Over a number of years, we put in a number of different management measures to help rebuild this fishery and bring it back. And really the key of the rebuilding plan was using closure, spatial management, closing large swaths of bottom. So when Tobe was in this position back in 2009, um, 13 areas were closed along the coast for three years. Um, and basically it was 20% of the bottom and really that, that is the industry gave that bottom up to try to take and rebuild this fishery, working with the department to do that. So, 
since that time, um, we've used those closures and they have evolved. We have a set of rotating closures down east. We do in-season closures on emergency basis. So we've been using these different layers of spatial management to really bring back the fishery. Great. Um, I'm going to switch to Phoebe a little bit because I know that you've been working with fishermen and your group has been working with fishermen in a closed area to research how it's going. Um, how, what's it like from the perspective of a fisherman and the guys that you guys have been working with um, to, to deal with closures? How's that going? I mean, I, I think our experience is a pretty specific one. Um, our area is a very small closed area. Uh, in the Muscle Ridge area of Penobscot Bay. Um, and you know what's unique about this project is that it was the fishermen who came and said, we want to close this. So I think that you know, from that perspective, there is an understanding how beneficial they can be, but there needs to be more understanding on the science side and the fisherman side about how effective they can be in the future. And so that's kind of what we're starting to get at. Um, and our closed area is, uh, it's closed for three years, and so we did kind of initial data collection before it was closed as when it was part of, correct me if I'm wrong, Tricia, but um, part of a larger closure around it, and we selected a small area there uh, with the help of the fishermen. Again, they helped us identify where, you know, where the closure would be, and it was a really collaborative um, process between us, the fishermen, and the state um, in helping to identify where that would be. And so there was kind of data collected before, you know, before it was closed and then uh, going forward. So we're in the third year of data collection. Um, and, you know, I think there just needs to be, we're in the process of figuring out um, how everyone feels about it, you know. And I think that that's what this effort is, that real collaborative effort is building trust and capacity from everyone's side um, to, to move towards a greater understanding of the impact of these closures. Um, uh, for any of you, what, what do you think is the, has been the motivation for the fishermen to initiate this desire to have the closure? Yeah. Go ahead. We, told, we hold the gun to their head is what they would tell you and say, well, you're not going to have a season if you don't have closures. No, we, um, back when I was at DMR, as Trish said, DMR is Department of Marine Resources. <laughs> we identified the fact that we need to do something to bring this resource back. There's a huge opportunity for economic, uh, you know, benefits to primarily down East Maine we know that when managed properly, scallops thrive. You know, they grow at 20 to 30% per year. If, if you had a bank account and it was giving you 20 to 30% interest, mm -hmm. you wouldn't be taking driving down the principal, you know? And so the department, the department was really interested, okay, we have to do something. And so we had a bunch of meetings and we said, okay, what, let's throw all the ideas on the table. What might we want to do? And there were a number of, of ideas that rose to the top. One of them was enhancement, which uh, I'm sure Dana's going to talk about later. Uh, another one was limiting, was um, reducing the length of the season because at that point it was December 1st through April 15th, all days inclusive. And then the third was closures. Because in the federal fishery, they really brought their resource back by implementing closures. Those closures were put in place actually to help the groundfish fishery, and it, that didn't work out too well, but it really, the scallop resource just exploded. And so we, we tried actually unsuccessfully at first to have some closures put in place, that failed. And then in the second attempt, um, by really threatening them and saying, if we don't have closures, you're not gonna have a season next year. We came through with some closures that weren't perfect, you know, and, and one of the things that I think is really good is that this is an iterative process, an adaptive process. Mm -hmm. And so DMR does listen to what the fishermen have to say and they alter what they're doing accordingly. But the original impetus for the closures was, 
we're gonna we're gonna do something. So, and you you said you wanted closures. Okay, we're gonna do it. Um, and uh, so you mentioned enhancement. Dana, can you tell us a little bit about what enhancement means? How does one enhance a wild population shellfish? Sure, I'll give it a shot. Um, I think I'll back up with a little bit of basic yeah, scallop biology. That would be great, thank you. Um, so scallops are bivalves, they've got two shells, um, and males and females are, are separate. Um, there are some uh, shellfish out there that are the same sex within the same one, they're hermaphrodites, but uh, males and females are separate, so that means um, when spawning season comes around, which is usually July time or so uh, along the coast, the, the gametes, the eggs and the sperm, are, are uh, released into the water column where they're fertilized and then those larvae float around for 40 or 50 days and uh, then they go through a process of settlement or metamorphosis. They have a really big change and then they sink to the bottom and that's where they kind of start their life as a juvenile scholar. Um, the idea with enhancement is that there are some techniques and some materials adopted from the Japanese where you can set out what we call spat collectors or seed collectors in the water column and essentially trap those developing larvae before they settle out of the water column. And if you picture a pillowcase sized mesh bag made out of plastic, within a single collector about that size, we can gather easily two to 3,000 scallops. And so those scallops can then grow in that bag for a little bit and then. And the, the bag is the collector. The There's bag not is the collector. Device. You're just hanging the bag in the water. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, so if you put the spat collector out at the right place at the right time, you're basically intercepting those larvae as they develop. And they kind of float inside the bag and they settle out inside the bag and they start to grow. And pretty soon they get too big to emerge from the fine mesh of the outer layer of the bag. So you've caught maybe several thousand small scallops. Um, and uh, by returning them to the bottom at a later date when maybe they're five millimeters or 10 millimeters, about a half an inch, then the, the, uh, the assumption is that you're adding to the, the uh, stock that's standing on the bottom and that they have a good chance of survival. Okay, great, thanks for that biological overview. Um, just a, a couple of really basic questions here about scallops. Um, one is, um, in case we have any listeners out there who are getting scallops and clams and mussels confused, um, we have some folks who might not be really familiar with our different shellfish. Can you def describe which one we're talking about? We're talking about the sea scallop. The, the uh, scientific name is Placopectin magellanicus. It can grow to eight or nine inches or so in the shell size. And the shell is usually kind of a, a light brown color. It's different than the bay scallop, which some people might be familiar with. That scallop only lives for about two years. It's much smaller, and it has a really wavy shell on it. Um, so you can take a look at the wavy shells. Those are not our sea scallop. And um, if you're walking along the intertidal zone, you're not going to find sea scallops at low tide, right? They're a lot further out. That would be very unusual, although uh, lots of people will tell you that um, they have waded into very shallow water and seen sea scallops there before, especially uh -huh. when we had higher population levels. Okay, yeah, totally. I was just gonna say, um, one of the things that is, can be confusing is that, so we're talking about sea scallops, but here in Maine, we're really the only state in the country that has a significant inshore population of sea scallops that actually live in our bays. 
So you can be getting Maine sea scallops that came from, for instance, Casco Bay or Penobscot Bay. Um, and one of the things that I think is really interesting, as you know, I'm trying to differentiate this product, you know, people sort of accept the fact that oysters have different flavors depending on where they grow and what they're eating. Scallops do as well. And Maine produces not just the most amazing scallops, but also a wide variety of amazing scallops. So a Casco Bay scallop tastes very different than a Cobscook Bay scallop, which tastes different from a Jonesport scallop. You wouldn't really understand this if all you're having are the waterlogged scallop from the generic offshore waters. But if you're having a main scallop, you can actually tell the difference between these different areas. And I think that's something really cool, and I'm trying to educate consumers about that. That's really cool. So I'm imagining, much like I love to go to a raw oyster bar and try different oysters, mm -hmm. going to uh, some restaurant and trying three different varieties of scallops. Mm -hmm. That's delightful. Yeah. Just as a, as a quick aside, if listeners have an opportunity to experience essentially a raw scallop, mm -hmm. it's a little bit difficult to do sometimes, they should definitely take advantage of it because uh, I'm sure they will find it a, a new and really exciting culinary experience. <laughs> Very tasty. They They're are amazing. delicious. And I'm not a huge raw seafood person, but raw scallops are amazing. And it's mm -hmm. so fun when I go to the sampling events in New York and I'll say, oh, no, really try it. They're like, mm -hmm. eh, and then their eyes just light up. Yeah. Speaking of eyes, actually, <laughs> scallops are one of the only bi are the only bivalve that have a set of eyes. So they have these really cool black eyes all around their rim. They are the only shellfish that can see. Neat. And we eat when you're in the market at the fishmonger. You're not buying the shell, right? Tell us what you're buying. What part? Essentially, you're buying the abductor muscle. So it's the muscle that opens and closes those two shells. Um, and really, we're only landing that part of the scallop because there can be biotoxins accumulated in the viscera or the guts or the gonads. Um, but in Maine, we shuck all our scallops. They're all, pro they're all processed at sea, and they're landed just the mussels are landed. There are, there are a few special licenses out there that will allow you to land it on the shell, and other fisheries do land the gonads because they are a culinary delight. But here in Maine, really what we're looking for, what we, what we land is the, the muscle, the actual muscle. Great, great. So from a, from a research perspective, um, what are some of the questions that researchers are trying to answer about scallops? What are we, what, what's the stuff that we need to know in terms of either the population or the growth or what, what's being done in the research world? So specifically with our project, um, a couple of the questions that we're trying to answer are what are the effects of closed areas on scallop populations, on scallop densities, um, how is that impacting basically the reproductive abilities, um, kind of larval supply. So in our project, we set out the spat bags that Dana mentioned um, to get an idea of larval su supply to our research area. Um, we also do dive surveys. So we go along a 50-meter transect, and within a meter on either side, we count the number of scallops. Within every five meters, we also collect those scallops for genetic analysis. Um, and we also do shell height to get an idea of um, their growth and also size distribution. Um, and then we're also processing the shells. We have a big processing party coming up in December to process the 1,500 shells that we've collected to look at um, growth rates. Uh, of those in within the within the closed area and outside of the closed area, um, so you know again, kind of just giving a really broad view of what's going on at the population level and how can closures impact um, impact the densities in the population in the future. Interesting. 
Um, if you're just tuning in, we're listening to Coastal, this is Coastal Conversations on WERU 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and 99.9 FM in Bangor and streaming and podcasting online at weru.org. Um, just a reminder that today's show is pre-recorded and we're not taking any calls. Um, we are talking about Maine scallops today. And my guests in the studio are Trisha Cheney from the Department of Marine Resources, Tove Braun um, from uh, Downey Stable. Stable. Thank you. <laughs> um, Phoebe Jekalek from Hurricane Island Center for Science and Leadership, and Dana Morse from the University of Maine Sea Grant and Cooperative Extension. Yeah. So tell us more about research. Yeah, I just I also wanted to say that you know so within our specific project, there's kind of two different ways of collecting data going. The, the the dive surveys, which take place all from fishermen's boats, all the the guys that really established this project. They take us out on all the trips, they help us deploy all the spat bags, they help us collect all the spat bags, they help us process the samples at sea. Um, and then we also partner with UMass Dartmouth, they bring up their drop camera. So to basically increase the amount of area that we're covering because we can only dive so deep um, to do these dive surveys um, and you can only go so many times a day. So basically to increase our sampling, we work with them, they come up, we do three days of uh, drop camera surveys, so it's a, it's a big drop camera that goes down and takes a picture of the bottom, and from there, um, you can count the number of scallops, you can measure the scallops, you can see associated flora and fauna, um, animals and plants with all of those um, within that habitat, and this year we did about 327 sites with a drop camera, and we did, we sampled 15 sites on dive surveys. So it kind of gives a good idea of how different those different sampling methods are. And what does uh, scallop habitat look like? How deep are they? What else is living in the same, you know, in their immediate space? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it's interesting, uh, from the dive surveys, there's, you know, there's, so when we're down there, we record what the habitat looks like every five meters. So there's, there can be shell hash, so old shells that are creating habitat. We find most of the scallops in sandy habitat. I'm sure anyone here would tell you the same. Um, they hang out mostly on sandy bottom. Um, but you know, when we sample, we have to sample, we, we kind of initiated sampling in random areas. So those bottom types are different, you know, and so that is giving a, a good idea of where you do find scallops, generally in the sandy areas, um, but also where that population can exist uh, outside of that, you know. So in, you know, we do find scallops in the shell hash, you do find scallops on the mud now and then, um, and you know, there are lobsters and, there are, you know, worms, and there's, you know, pretty much anything that you would find. Some areas have a lot of um, kind of roving algae that's been washing around there. Um, so yeah, I mean, each each spot is a little bit is a little bit different mm -hmm. and dark and murky generally. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Um, so uh, we've talked a little bit about the wild fishery. Is there anyone in Maine? Um, Dana, you talked a little bit about enhancement. Is there anyone growing scallops um, in a, I guess, shellfish farming sort of way, um, much the way folks might be growing mussels? Yeah, there are a small few. I think the count is seven farms at the moment. Several of these are shellfish growers by profession, but they're also commercial fishermen who are also essentially farming as well. And um, how do they do it? Uh, it, Without it, revealing their trade secrets. <laughs> <laughs> the super secrets of the scallop aquaculture industry. Um, it is a, they use similar gear to what you might find for other shellfish species, uh, things like oysters, um, where most of the time the 
cages are made out of plastic or wire mesh like lobster trap mesh, and they sit on the bottom. One of the things that we found through our work so far is that our sea scallop doesn't like to move around a lot. So for example, if it was sitting on the surface, they'd be tied in waves and things like that, kind of jostling the scallops. And they don't tend to like that kind of motion very much. So we have them in cages that are stable. They'll sit uh, on the bottom or slightly off the bottom. Uh, and the cages will come in different mesh sizes. So you can put a small scallop into a small mesh cage so that the scallop stays in the cage. And then as the scallop grows, you can put them into a larger mesh cage, and that larger mesh allows more water to flow through them. And uh, is, the, is the, the market for um, farm scallop, sort of a, a bigger picture market question, farm scallops, scallops harvested in federal waters, harvested in state waters, does the market differentiate? Yeah, Tove. It's going to. Um, I mean, that is my goal. Right now, there is, there is not much differentiation in the marketplace, and we could choose to get into this later or not. The only uh -huh. really differentiation that there is is that a lot of people will, will specifically request dive-caught scallops. Um, and unfortunately, we have great scallops in Maine caught by both draggers and divers. And unfortunately, the majority of what is actually labeled diver scallop was not actually harvested by a diver. It's a scallop that was harvested by a dragger that someone realized they could get more money from by putting a diver scallop label on it. So one of the, you know, one of my many bandwagons that I'm on is like, you should be asking for Maine scallops. They are harvested sustainably, whether they come from a dragger or a diver. They sh if you, you need to know who harvested them, just to, you know, make sure they're from Maine, make sure that there aren't a lot of steps between you and the fishermen. But if you're getting a Maine scallop, you're going to get a really tasty scallop. So that's what people should be asking for. Um, we have a season that runs from December through mid-April right here. That, that is sort of an exciting thing of like, you know, Nouveau Beaujolais, you're waiting for something. Let's get excited because scallop season's coming up. But it also is a problem with marketing. A lot of people want to have access to something year-round. This is one way that, you know, cultivated scallops could really be helpful here in Maine. If that gets really running and can produce some consistent landings, then we can have access to Maine scallops year-round. Another thing that I'm looking into is um, large-scale freezing of Maine scallops. But really high-end freezing, uh, you can get frozen scallops right now, but they're the frozen scallops from offshore. They're individually quick frozen, which puts a glaze around the scallop, and therefore that's more water that's going to be absorbed into it once it defrosts. So I'm looking into some methods to, um, to freeze scallop without adding water. Um, but yeah, we produce a better scallop. It's a, we have a very small quantity of a very high-quality product, and our... our you know, small amount of supply could work to our advantage and to the fishermen's advantage if we could just help people to realize they are that much better. So I'm working on increasing demand, and then we should be able to get more money back into the state from it. Mm -hmm. Stan. Well, the, the thing I'd like to add to that, I guess, or to um, remind people of, is the size of the, the scallop market right now. It's something in excess of $550 million, approximately. Mm -hmm. And that is in Maine or in the, that's the nation? The U.S. sea scallops. In, Thank right, you. in the nation. A half a billion dollar market for scallops. And Maine's production right now is very small. Um, added to that, the real premium that people pay for Maine shellfish, and I'm talking not just about Maine scallops, but if you use the example of oysters, which Maine production in relation to oysters is pretty small, Maine oyster producers get uh, probably 10 to 25 cents premium above oysters from other states 
because, and I'm a biased person, it's a better product and it has the main um, imprimatur to it. It's the main name, and that means things to the customers, and it means things for the people who are either growing them or catching them, and so really that's the bottom line. We have a superior product, regardless if you catch it in Maine or if you grow it in Maine. Our goal is to put more of that product on the market. Yeah, Phoebe, you were going to add something? Well, I was just going to say that something else that makes us unique is that it is a, an inshore fishery here, and that that only enhances our ability to get a fresher product, mm -hmm. you know, on a shorter time scale, you know, and like Tog said before, you know, all of those scallops are coming from an individual fisherman, um, you know, and they are, you know, like Trisha said about, you know, the, the, the federal fishery is, is much larger and um, all of it is owned by a few. This really is, it's a, it's a diverse fishery here and all of those scallops are coming from individual fishermen and they're coming into shore that day. So generally you're eating your product literally fresh off the boat and that is amazing. And you're eating it harvested by your neighbor yeah. is what I'm hearing. Mm. Yeah, totally. I, I have my, my tagline on my, from a business is taste the difference a day makes because mm -hmm. they're all day boat products. And so these were not out there for a week sitting on ice. These, you know, and I ship my scallops always within 24 hours of harvest. Uh, and there are, there, are, there are difficulties. I understand why we haven't differentiated them in the past because the U.S. sea scallop industry is headquartered really in, in New Bedford and then in New Jersey and where these large vessels come in and they dump the product into these big, you know, vertically integrated corporations that, you know, it's, a, it's an economy of scale. So by explain what you mean by vertical integration. So there'll be one owner that owns the fishing boats and the processing facility and the wholesalers. And so it's just one entity that's taking care, sort of like the Walmart of the fisheries world. So here in Maine, we've got, you know, 400 small boats coming in at the very far right-hand corner of the country in the coldest months of the year and bringing in a five-gallon bucket. You know, so there are disadvantages. It makes it difficult. So, like, what I had to do in order to get these scallops out is that I, people order on my website by Sunday night. I look at the orders that have come in. I call my fishermen. We look at the weather forecast, and then I figure out, okay, which ports am I going to buy from on which days? And then I go to there, and I package them up, and I ship them off. That's... That's not something that a lot of these big Walmart type organizations are going to want to deal with, but that's what you have to do to get this product out in, a, in, a, in its amazing, pristine state. And you really can taste the difference a day makes. I mean, obviously, I'm not unbiased, but I mean, if you try, you'll see they, it, you're getting a very different product. And I think that, you know, what Toe's talking about and, and what we've been kind of chatting about the past, the past few minutes that individual investment, that, that is a motivator for these fishermen that kind of established the project that, that we're working on with them, that's a motivator for that. You know, it is, it is a very individual impact fishery, you know, and these guys, that's what they spend doing for four and a half months of their lives. And, you know, and that's a big motivator to, to understand what's going on from a biological standpoint, from a population standpoint, and, you know, and how they can impact and how they can how they can be a part of making the decisions that are that are going to continue this fishery, and and I that's what's been really pretty inspirational working with all these guys is that you know they get it and it's their idea and it's their fishery and they want to own it and they want to be part of the really conversations. Um, uh, there's been a, a couple of terms that I just want us to define. We've been talking about inshore and offshore, um, and Trisha, I'm going to look to you as the the token manager in the room. <laughs> current manager. We have a, a, a former manager in the room too, but I'm going to look to you as the current manager to just define the terms inshore, offshore, 
what's the difference? What does that what does that mean? Because perhaps for inshore might to some people mean uh, along the shore, mm -hmm. so in the, you know in the intertidal, which is not accurate. So in the context of the Maine fishery, we Maine has territorial waters out to three miles, and our fishery happens within those three miles. So. Um, the, the fishing beds are all within close distance of most people's ports, so inshore just meaning really day boat. They can go out in a day, fish that bottom, and come back. Offshore fishermen, um, most of those boats are, are out of New Bedford, and those guys go out for trip fishing. So they go out for multiple days at a, at a time. So they're out there a week at a time. And so those guys are way offshore, Georgia's Bank. Um, the scallops, as Tog referred to, are kept on ice for multiple days in a row. So it's, and it's the size. It's the size of those vessels are much larger. Obviously, they're out on the banks, which are inclement weather. Small boats don't really belong out there. But um, it's, it's that differentiation of the size of the vessel and also the time scale. So fishing and landing in one day versus over a trip or a, a week. Or more. Or, or sometimes more, yeah. And um, I think probably if, if um, we were able to have some calls in today, which we can't do because it's a pre-recorded show, um, we probably would have a caller ask us about to differentiate between um, dragger, dive. What is, what is the, the differentiation between the two and why do, why do people ask that question? Yeah, so our, our fishery is made up by two gear types. So we have... The majority of our fishery is prosecuted by draggers, so 95 to possibly even 98% of the product is landed by these smaller lobster boat size 45 foot draggers, or less. Some of, some of them are open skiffs hauling a hand drag. Um, but we do have a number, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I just, that sounds like a, a very hard work <laughs> yes. to be in an open yeah. skiff with a hand yeah. drag. No, yeah, no, there's a couple <laughs> of areas like Cobscook Bay or Goldsboro <coughs> Bay where the resource is rebuilt that people can put a hand drag over and can actually get their limit with a hand drag, which is just a small mm -hmm. drag a, about five feet wide at the very most, and they put it on their pot hauler, their, their lobster pot hauler. So, oh, and then okay. the bigger scale guys will have a drag that goes off the side or the bot or, or the back, and it's a 10-foot drag usually. Um, so the majority of the fleet is, is, is comprised of those vessels. However, we do have a couple of uh, guys in the fishery that die for scallops, and they hand harvest those, those animals off the bottom, selecting for the animals that are the biggest and, and the best usually. And so they have no impact on bottom habitat and no impact on sublegal product as well. So there you have these two components of the fishery that exist, that coexist. And so a lot of people, you know, many consumers nowadays are really concerned about where their, where their food is coming from, um, not only for health and food safety, but also what is, the, what is the biological impact to the resource, to the habitat of this form of fishing. And the thing that I always refer to is there's always an impact to every type of protein that we eat as consumers. Um, and in this fishery, we're addressing that by using these spatial closures, by using the spatial management to take and um, move around the effort. Uh, a lot of the fishery for the draggers is, is happening in sandy and cobble bottom that Phoebe referred to. And that bottom is the, the, the elements of the winter with nor'easters that the, the basic Basically, a similar impact can be a nor'easter coming across bottom as, as a drag being drug across a sandy bottom. There are issues when that, um, that sandy bottom basically meets rocky bottom in the intertidal and really up in some of the rivers, but for the majority of this product, it's, it's, it's harvested from these big open bays, these big sandy bays, and every year that bottom is often turned over by nor'easters, 
along with, with drag gear. Our drags are designed in a way that they allow, um, they have very little bycatch of other species, so they allow a lot of um, the sublegal product to pass through these four-inch rings, which we made as a regulation a number of years ago. So what we've found is that by having a limited fishery occur, um, we've been able to rebuild the fishery using these closures. And you've seen that while we've removed product from the resource and there are impacts to the bottom, that that resource itself has recovered and increased, and we see that through the landings every year. With our landings coming back last year, um, being one of the highest in the last 10 years. And landings is the volume of fish that it's gets It's the brought. volume of fish. So 10 years ago when the fishery was at an all-time all low, it was 33,000 pounds harvested from the resource. This past year in 2014, um, so nine years later, the, we harvested over 600,000 pounds of scallops from the resource. So you've seen a $200,000 fishery grow to a $7.8 million fishery. And, and you have to take and give that back, owe some credit to the industry, to the accepting these closures, abiding by them, and they've benefited greatly. That is an amazing um, <laughs> statistic. You know, so much, so often in the popular media, when you hear about fisheries, it's all these like doom and gloom stories. But this is really the main scallop fishery is really an incredible recovery. It's and it's not only to the individual license holders. We've gone from having just under 200 people participate in this fishery to over over 400. So 438 guys fished in the fishery last year. So you've had an expanding resource and an expanding group of people being able to benefit from that resource. That's great, that's great. Tobe, yeah. I, I, whenever we talk about divers and draggers, I have to just do my little, my little yeah. two cents of, you know, we live in a soundbite nation and it's a very easily understandable, oh, a diver has no impact on the bottom, I want that diver scallop because it's so much better. It's not that simple um, for a number of reasons, mm -hmm. one of which is, Maine produces, as Trish just said, you know, somewhere between two and five percent of what we bring in is harvested by divers. So, you know, that's a very small amount of scallops that are coming in. But there are tons of diver scallops being sold out there, but that's because they're not actually diver scallops. It, there's no enforcement, there's no one out there checking the labels. So, when you are in a, often if you're in a restaurant, not always, there are reputable places out there. Um, but you'll see a diver scallop on the menu, it's probably not a diver scallop. It's probably a dragger scallop that somebody just labeled diver scallop. So more often than not, it's fraudulent. Um, and then it's, I say it's not that simple as, oh, it's, har it's sustainable because it was harvested by a diver. They're, both methods are sustainable. And DMR is doing a very good job of managing the interplay of both the divers and the draggers and making sure that this fishery is growing. And obviously it's working because it has grown. And I'll say what Trisha said in the past also, you know, this fishery has been brought back really on the backs of the draggers. There was, we had to really cut back on effort. And the divers didn't... The effort means... The amount of effort going into the fishery. So, so the amount of effort... That days. People, days. Days dragging. Yeah, the amount of, basically the amount of scallops that you're taking from the resource. So guys okay. used to be able to go out from December 1st to April 15th, take, there, was, there were no limits, they could take whatever they wanted. Most, not all, but most of the limits that we've put on have impacted the, dra the draggers more than the divers. So they've given up to bring this fishery back. All main scallops are harvested sustainably. All main scallops are, they're, they're tasty, they come from these waters that are producing a bit a denser, more delicious scallop, and they're being brought to, sh to shore much more quickly. So people really need to start asking for main scallops, regardless of the method of harvest, and really perpetuating the whole diver scallop. I don't want to call it fraud entirely, because there are actually, you know, divers do bring these in, but perpetuating the, the myth 
that a diver's scallop is somehow better really does a disservice to all of Maine's industry and to consumers as well because they're so often being fed a line by someone. The only piece I would add is the majority of the resource is outside the bounds of diving. It's either in deep water, high currents, it's just out of, out, just inaccessible. So we would not be able to have the economic benefit of this fishery overall if it was only pr prosecuted by divers. There, of course, divers should get a higher price for their product. It's donning that dive gear in the middle of winter to hand harvest scallops. Yeah. Definitely, they should have a price premium on that. But the majority of the resource would not be able to be landed by divers. So that's why there's a place for both gear types in this fishery. Yeah, yeah. Phoebe, yeah. And, and definitely correct me if I'm wrong here, everybody. Um, but what I think is really interesting and, in, in, you know, kind of the success story of this is that they're not out there fishing every single day and filling those buckets every mm -hmm. single day. You know, the, the management that happens right now is in addition to closed areas, there are limited access areas. There's, they can fish... Three days a week. In Three days a week in Cobscook, four days a week outside. And then there's weather. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's not happening every day, you know. So really, the idea of getting back to numbers like that from 10 years ago blows my mind, um, you know, that it's, you know, it's, it's different than other fisheries and that because there are limited, um, there's limited access to the resource, you know. And, and then when they do get out there, it is a limited amount that they can take. So it's, it's a pretty amazing effort. Just a, just a very brief comment, but increasingly people want the story behind their food. Yeah. And if readers take some time to visit uh, these different outlets for information, Department of Marine Resources, Downey Stayboat, Hurricane Island, Sea Grant, any of those other resources that are out there that might have some photographs or videos, I think they will be very engaged to understand the places, the people, the equipment, just the whole imagery of how these scallops are caught um, is, uh, is quite captivating. It's great yeah. stuff there. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, if you are just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations. We are talking today about Maine scallops and what makes them so great. Um, you're listening to WERU 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and 99.9 FM in Bangor and streaming and podcasting online at WERU.org. Just a reminder that today's show is pre-recorded and we're not able to take any calls. Um, we have a little bit of time left and I wanna um, ask you guys to sort of peer into your crystal ball and what, what you see for the future of the scallop industry and also the sustainability of the scallop resource itself. Um, who wants to start? I'll take a start at it. Go for it. Dana, <laughs> yeah. this is Dana Morse from the University of Maine Sea Grant and Cooperative Extension. Yeah, thanks. The, um, much of my work these days is in aquaculture development. So how can we grow better? How can we grow different species, grow more, all that kind of stuff. But it also increasingly is in the, the overlap or that gray area about what it means to be a commercial fisherman versus what it means to be an aquaculturist, a sea farmer. And increasingly, over the last decade and more, what we've seen is an overlap, an integration of these two. And it's never going to be perfect. Fishing and farming will probably always have some conflicts in them. But the real opportunity is when our fishermen are also farmers and the other way around. There's just a fantastic opportunity there. And I'm talking not just about feeding the market, but about how we use our coastal resources and what it means to be a seafood producer. 
so t tell us a little bit more about that. So that a seafood producer is not differentiated as either fisherman or farmer, but as a seafood producer sort of writ large. Yeah, uh, I, I think I would agree with that. Um, it's not like every fisherman is going to leave commercial fishing to become a farmer or the other way around. But what I'm trying to get at, I suppose, is that growing things is an, is an additional tool in that toolbox to produce seafood. And I also don't expect uh, a person who's grown up as a commercial fisherman to then identify and say, oh, I'm a seafood producer. No, that's not going to happen. They're going to be proud fishermen, and all that's cool. Um, but by integrating these two things, I think we can put this fantastic seafood on the market, on people's tables, and show people why Maine seafood is just so spectacular. That's great. That's great. Phoebe, what's your prognosis for the future in terms of um, sort of the research that you guys are doing and um, some of the data that you're starting to see come in? Well, I think it's great. Um, something that is really important to us is the collaborative effort, um, especially working with fishermen, local guys. They're involved in the process from the beginning um, and really helping us to do the research. I look at pretty much every fisherman as a scientist anyway. Fishing is a science. You know, They have their own science, and so really kind of both of us continuing that collaborative effort to, for scientists and fishermen to educate each other and to be communicators of that partnership and, you know, and to help us both understand what's going on in the system and how to best manage it. And I think that it's a great prognosis. Um, the, the gentlemen that we work with are invested and committed and enthusiastic, um, you know, and we hope that we can continue to, to do projects like this in the future and hope to create a model um, to, to spread efforts like this throughout Maine um, because it's a really great experience. Is, it, um, is the research on the closed areas and how the populations are doing in versus out, is it too soon to tell? How, how, what, what are you guys finding so far? I'm not gonna go too deep into this, yeah. but um, you know, part of what we're kind of trying to get at is the importance of length of time that places are closed and the impact that that has on populations because, you know, just like us, we're kind of slow growers and scallops aren't necessarily slow growers, but giving them time to reproduce, um, uh, kind of regenerate their population in a certain area, building the brood stock, if you will, so the, the larger scallops that are doing a lot of reproduction, that's an important part of, of understanding the impact of closures. Um, you know, so Thank heavens, we you know we got three years. Who knows what's going to happen next? Um, this is our this will next year will be our last year for the Muscle Ridge closed area, and then we'll we'll revisit. Um, but you know I think it's important to to keep those conversations open about length of time. Um, you know, and so we just finished diving two weeks ago um, for our area, um, and we also work with DMR. DMR also does a sampling in Ocean Point closed area, which is at the mouth of the Damariscotta River. Um, and so that's a comparative site for us. Um, and, you know, and I, I think it's important to, yeah, just keep those conversations open about, about the importance of maybe keeping them closed and, you know, weighing the, the pros and cons of, of that option in the future. But like I said, everyone, we've been having great conversations and great partnerships and great collaboration, and I see that only continuing, so. Great. Um, Trisha from the Department of Marine Resources, before you peer into your crystal ball, can you explain a little bit how the department um, decides when to open and close certain areas? H how does that mm -hmm. happen? Is that 
That is that process. That is key to our plan. Um, what we've got is we call it a trigger mechanism, and it's a it's a harvest target that is when when we predict or have information that suggests that 30% of the abundance or biomass has been removed from a, an explicit area, we close that area for the rest of the season to harvest. And the idea is it is it's behind the amount of growth that the scallop. Um, undertakes a year, about 20 to 30% a year. So the idea is that you remove a part of your interest without digging into your principal. Mm -hmm. And so I think that over the last couple of years, we've really refined this and we're really hopeful this year. In it, last season in Cobscoke Bay, we had the highest biomass on record in our survey, about almost 600,000 pounds in that bay alone, and we took about 37%. And so we're going back, we surveyed last week, we're gonna have those numbers before the season started, and we're really hoping that we found the sweet spot. How much can you remove on an annual basis, and that comes back every year, so that you create a stable fishery, providing a stable indus industry benefit, and then the conversation becomes, how do you wanna divide that benefit up? How do you wanna have access to that benefit? So the goal being that it's a productive fishery in terms of uh, economics, but also stable for the industry. And earlier in the show, you mentioned um, sort of in passing the Scallop Advisory Council. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how who that body is and how they help the Department of Marine Resources sort of make decisions about the scallop fishery? Yeah, so the, the department follows a really strong ethic of co-management. It's utilizing industry representatives, um, scientists, public members um, to really help the department uh, flush out ideas for policy or management. And so the Scallop Advisory Council, we've had Dana sit on it in the past as a scientific um, member. Uh, we have fishermen, so draggers and divers, buyers, people who purchase the product, a number of scientists, and a public member as well. And I convened the, those meetings to be just basically delve out what are we gonna do in the coming year, five years, 10 years down the road. So we're actually looking into the future, as you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. We're working on a fishery management plan, which is a visioning document, um, with the idea being having a conversation with industry about where we want this fishery to be long-term down the road. We haven't had any new entrants come into the fishery in a number of years. We had to limit it about five years ago. And so the big topic of, of conversation has been, you know, now that the fishery's on track to rebuilding, which we wanna be able to support the whole number of people, the number of people that hold licenses in the fishery right now, which is just under 700, how do we let new people in in the future? And so that's a really important topic, and I think that's something that's gonna be coming down in the next couple of years. Great, great. Um, and um, what do you see for the future of the fishery? Um, I think that we've, we've, we're on year five down east in a rotational management plan, which is coming online, and we're really starting to see some of the benefits from that. The idea is similar to crop rotation. Every three years, you take a piece of bottom, harvest it, and then give it two years off, and it allows the resource to spawn and reproduce, um, as well as the economic yield coming from those scallops is much greater. And so that's really going to start to come on to, um, online in the next couple of years. And so really for the longest time, Cobscook Bay was the real, only place in the, in the state that produced scallops. And now we're starting to see a large amount of scallops come out of Machias and Jonesport and Goolsboro. So it's working its way down the coast. So I think the resource is going to grow, but bringing it back to who benefits from that is going to be an important question that we're going to have to deal with in the next couple of years. Thanks. Thanks. And uh, Tobe from um, Down East Daybook, tell us a little bit about what you think is the prognosis for the future. And I'm also going to ask you, um, as we're 
in the thick of the holiday season, what should people be looking for um, this holiday season as they're getting ready to make their favorite scallop recipes? When they should there? be purchasing gift baskets from my website ah! so that they can <laughs> ship scallops, especially scallops, oysters, and lobster to people all around the country. So what better way to share the benefit of Maine? Downeastdayboat.com. Um, but more importantly, Five to ten years from now, people all around the country and at certain other parts of the world will know that Maine scallops are the best scallops around. Just as beluga is to caviar and Dom Perignon is to champagne, Maine will be to scallops because we are. Um, a lot of times those names get recognized because of marketing, but there's not any substance behind it. We've got the substance. We just need to work on the marketing. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to do. So people will recognize that we produce the best scallops in the country. Also, we will have a continually more and more sustainable fishery. Because, for, for instance, at my, at my business, I have a sustainability bonus. I feel it's important to provide an economic incentive mm -hmm. to sustainability. So I pay my guys a good price, but then at the end of the season, as long as they've sold me a certain you know, base level, um, they get an additional bonus as long as they haven't violated any marine resource regulations during that season. So that is just an extra incentive for them to make sure that they're abiding by the rules. And it's, you know, it's hard to be green when you're in the red. You, know, you need to have an economic incentive. And I think we need to let these guys know, like, listen, it's not, don't go out there and take every last scallop. You know, we've made some huge progress, and we need to cultivate those gains that we've made because, as Dana said, people really are interested in the story. So we've got an amazing product. It's tastier. If you just had a taste test, absolutely no question, we would always win. Then we've got this great story of sustainability. We brought this resource back from the brink. So that's great. Who do we have? We have an, a stereotype, a caricature of who people want to be providing their seafood to them, like the craggy old fisherman, one man, <laughs> one boat, fishing off the coast of Maine in December to March. You cannot get any better story. We've got it all. We just need to be better at delivering that and then making sure that our fishermen reap the rewards from that as well. So it it's, can't just be you know one company going out there and doing all this. We've got it all in Maine. Five to ten years from now, we will have seized it and realized it. Mm -hmm. and, and the world's going to be better off, too, because we produce these amazing scallops right now that are just being dumped into the commodity supply chain and dumbed down. So consumers will be better off and fishermen will be better off if the world recognizes the superiority of Maine scallops. Great. Thanks. Um, and you gave your website for mm -hmm. people to find out more. I think you said it's downeastdayboat.org. Dot com. Dot com. Thank yes. you. Um, I'm just going to ask each of you to say where people can get more or get in touch with you about the kind of work. Um, and then we'll wrap it up. Dana. Yeah. Uh, you can find work on uh, integrating fishing and aquaculture and scallop aquaculture in particular on the Maine Sea Grant website. Great. Uh, you can find info about our project on hurricaneisland.net. And if you're interested in participating in that part of the um, Penobscot Bay, yeah, shoot me an email um, at phoebe at hurricaneisland.net. Great. Thanks, Phoebe. How do we get in touch with the department? Yeah, so we have a department website, main.gov backslash DMR, and just search under commercial fisheries for scallops, and that'll be all at your fingertips. Great. Thanks so much, everyone. Um, we've come to the end of our coastal conversation today about Maine scallops. Um, and I'd like to thank all four of our guests for your time today and your great work. Um, thanks for, so much for joining us. We had Trish Cheney um, from the Department of Marine Resources, the fisheries manager. We had Tove Braun, who's a former fisheries manager and currently runs Down East Dayboat. Um, we had Phoebe Jekilek at um, Hurricane Island Center for Science and Leadership and Dana Morris at the University of Maine Sea Grant and Cooperative Extension. 
Coastal Conversations is produced um, with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. And I will say that next month's show will be on Christmas Day, and it will be about Maine seafood traditions. So tune in if you want to hear more about scallops and other species. Our show's theme music is A Following Sea. Um, it was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Seagrant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning.